I mean, I've seen this over the years often. I saw it with a, a guy that came to see me about his finances. And I said, well, let's see how much money. He had pro- He was having problems. He showed me his, his, what he, his income. He showed me his expenses. So this is a simple math problem. This is why you're in trouble. You're spending more than you're making. I said, this is what we need to do. And I, you know, you're going to have to eliminate some things. I don't think he liked that. He didn't come back to see me again. He didn't want to be financially healthy. Welcome to Reliable Truth with best-selling author Richard E. Simmons III. And now your host, Richard E. Simmons III. We are in the fifth chapter of the uh, book of John, and I would ask you to turn to it. We've had this material today, the teaching today, is very interesting. Uh, Hopefully you'll find it enlightening. Hopefully God will use it in your life. Um, we had some really interesting uh, conversations, and so we'll go, we'll go as far as we can until i got to get up and leave. So uh, take a minute, if you would, and, and read John chapter 5, verses 1 through 29. Anybody about finish? Um, how many of you have the NIV, the New International Version? All right, for you that have the NIV, what does verse 4 say? One who was there had been an invalid for 30 years. All right, now hold on. Is that verse 4? That's 5. Sorry. All right, I need 4. Wait a second. It doesn't have 4 in there. It goes 4 to 5. I got my bad glasses on. Sorry, son. You caught me. Many were lying close to the pool. No, well, I'm not NIV. What is NIV? NIV It's not in there. Okay. The NIV leaves it out. It's a trick question. Yeah, the reason, and the reason is, you know, we have a number of uh, ancient manuscripts that that don't include it, and so for whatever reason, the NIV decided to leave it out. Because ESV they, doesn't have it in there either. Huh? ESV doesn't. He doesn't have it in there either. The NAS does. I think the King James does. But anyway, it's, it talks about um, an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever got put into it would be healed. If they. And all I can say is this man obviously believed it, didn't he? Yeah. Because he'd been there all his life. He'd been 38 years and he's just waiting for somebody to put him in there. This was his only hope. And then very interesting, Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Isn't that interesting? Do you want to get well? And of course the man doesn't say yes. He says, well, I don't have anybody to put me down in the pool. Now, I think this is significant, and you could say that I'm overanalyzing this or overapplying it, but you know this man was 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 physically lame. He had this physical infirmity, and you know I look around the table. We got a bunch of healthy people, but you know we have our issues. We have our own infirmities. We have our own uh, struggles. And I really believe that Jesus is asking everybody, just like he was at, do you want to get well? Do you want to be made whole? Because I find that there are so many people 
who are not well and not healthy, and yet they're scared to death of the process that will be required to get well. I mean, I've seen this over the years often. I saw it with a, a guy that came to see me about his finances. And I said, well, let's see how much money he had. Pro- he was having problems. He showed me his, his, what he, his income. He showed me his expenses. So this is a simple math problem. This is why you're in trouble. You're spending more than you're making. <laughs> I said, this is what we need to do. And I, you know, you have to eliminate some things. I don't think he liked that. He didn't come back to see me again. <laughs> he didn't want to be financially healthy. It wasn't a girl. <laughs> his wife was definitely. Oh, I will say this: his wife definitely was part of the equation. You could tell. All right. Not part of the solution. When you start talking about eliminating expenses, that was part of the problem. But you know what? You know, I, I really do. I really do think that. I don't know if you read my blog last week about idolatry. But I think that's another part of the problem. We have these idols that are causing such harm to our lives, but we love them so much we don't want to give them up. And so, in other words, we don't want to get well. Now, in the four Gospels, we see a number of healings take place. But this one is unusual because of the reaction to the healing. And what's the problem? What what do the Jews get so upset about? Working on the Sabbath. It's a Sabbath issue. Yeah, there, and it's based on one of the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. And that's a great law. I think it's an important law. It's to rest from your labor. But the Jewish leaders, what they had done is they had taken this law and they had surrounded it with a number of other religious regulations that were not part of the law. Now let me read to you uh, another example of this. This is in Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 9. It says, Departing from there, he went into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They were trying. They wanted to accuse him. They wanted to get him. And he said to them, "What man is there? What man out here? In the, what man out here among you who has a sheep? And if the sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out and save that sheep?" And then he says, and how much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as how they might destroy him. You see, this is, this is the thing. And this is, we're going to talk about the law in just a second. This is the thing about the law. What does Jesus say in, in Mark 2.27? He says, what you guys don't get is that the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. That the Sabbath was made for man, 
for the good of man. And so you can see how these, these Jews, these they, they had corrupted the law. They made it, they, it became a heavy burden on people's lives, which it was never intended to have. Which leads into what I want to talk now, and that is about the law. The Old Testament law. Because it has application to us today. You see, there are two types of laws. You have what they call the ceremonial laws. Circumcision. The animal sacrifices. All the feasts and festivals. All the dietary laws. And these were all part of the Old Covenant. They were very symbolic. I'm trying to basically, kind of symbolism of, of, of the holiness before God. But you know, Jesus' death and resurrection inaugurated a new covenant. And as the writer of Hebrews 8.17 says, the old covenant is obsolete and disappearing. And I don't know how many of you were in, in this study five, four or five years ago when we studied the book of Galatians. And what Paul, he continually struggled with the Christians in the church in, in Galatia because basically they were Christians. They had become Christians. But so many of them felt like they needed to hold on to these ceremonial laws as if they were necessary to maintain their salvation. But then you have the, 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 the second laws. Some call it the civil laws. Others call it the moral law. What you see in the, in the Ten Commandments. And these laws carry over into the New Covenant. They still apply to our lives today. And Robbie Zacharias says that God has given us the moral law for three reasons. And I want to discuss those for just a second because you'll see in this, you'll see the beauty of the law. It was never meant to be a heavy burden that you carried around. The first is, the first reason God has given us the moral law is He wants us to understand who He is. You see, the law reflects the character of God. They are a reflection of who He is. Let me give you an example. I believe it's in James. It says, it tells us something that God can't do. Is there anything God can't do? Most people say God can do anything. No, there's something that God can't do. What is it? Lie. Lie. He's incapable of lying. And therefore, the law is not some arbitrary rule that He's grabbed out of the air and, and imposed upon mankind. It reflects who He is. And that's why being honest, not bearing fair, false witness against your neighbor is part of the law. Secondly, the law is a mirror to enable us to see what we are like. Remember in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And then at the very end it says, It judges and reveals the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The law reveals our sinfulness. Let me read to you. This is from Romans 7, verses 7 and 8. This is Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law a sin? Or is the law bad? 
May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. In other words, it's through the law that we see ourselves as we really are. We see our sin. And you know what the good news about that is? That points us and lets us know of our need for a Savior. I, I, I was looking for it and I couldn't find it, but in one of Paul's letters he says, the law is like a tutor that teaches us our need for a Savior. You see, guys, the legalistic Pharisee saw the law being given to make us holy, but in reality it was given to reveal our lack of holiness. And there are all kind of examples, but one that I'll, 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 I've given before is imagine you're driving through a small town and all of a sudden the blue light comes on and somebody pulls you over. The policeman pulls you over. And you say, what's, what's wrong, officer? You're going 50 miles an hour through a school zone. And I'm going to have to give you a ticket. And you say, I, I don't know what you're talking about. You argue with him. And he says, look, I've got this on tape. And he shows it. And you look at the tape. And you see, there's your car. And there's the 20 mile an hour sign. And there's, at the bottom of the, of the video, it shows you how fast you were going. 50 miles an hour. And all of a sudden you realize, you're right. I'm, I'm guilty. But you had to see it. You had to see the law. You had to see where you violated it to recognize your guilt. In one sense, that's what the law also is intended to do. But finally, and in my mind, maybe most importantly, I'm going to say this and I'll stop and see if you have any comments or questions. Many people see the law as nothing more as that which, which restricts my freedom. In other words, they see it as nothing more than God putting restrictions on our lives, restricting our behavior, telling us what to do. And what they don't see is that the law is like a schoolmaster to teach us how we were designed to live. It's kind of like, in one sense, and again, people don't see it this way. They did, I think, if they really understood it, they'd completely change their regard of the law. It's really like an owner's manual. Think about it as an owner's manual. The law fits our design so that we have the opportunity to see our lives really flourish. There's a huge difference between a a bunch of rules that restrict our lives versus an owner's manual. Let me stop here. Comments or questions? Here's another verse. <clears throat> I was looking at earlier. First um, John 2, 3, where it says, uh, Hereby we do know him, that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And that just kind of explains what you're talking yeah. about. You know, as you, as you do that, especially as a father, the more experience you have with 
with a father, you start to respect your own father more because the rules he laid out were not really yeah. do's and don'ts, yeah. but rather here's how to be happy. And, they, and they're for your good. They're for your ultimate good and well-being. Anybody else? But what you're saying, you're, you're, you're saying that the law is still applicable not as a means to be justified, Correct. but as a, Correct. like you said, a mirror Correct. to tell you how you're doing. Yeah. That's one of the, I think one of the main re- one, of, one of the three reasons that uh, that it's there that is that has been given to us, and as we will we're gonna we're gonna take up John at the very end what the, what you just what you just raised. So anyway, all right, we got to keep going. All right, where are we? Verse fourteen. Go to verse fourteen. What it, you got to remember? What just happened? Jesus is. Uh, Making everybody mad. He continually does that, yes. Particularly the Jews. But he's healed the man, and then they part, and then they kind of run in each other in the temple. And what does Jesus say in verse 14? I'm not, I gotta get back there. Do not sing anymore. Yeah, what's, yeah, what's, what's that all about? I mean, here he's healed him, they, they part, then they come back together, and Jesus has further words for him. What's that about, you think? Any ideas? Why would he, why would he say this? Because this kind of... I know the only reason he's well is because he gave it to him. Okay, all right. That, that, yeah, all right. But let, let, let's, this kind of, this kind of goes back to everything we've, we, we've, this will be the fourth time we've brought this up. The man had been healed physically. Now Jesus is, 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 is more <coughs> focusing on his spiritual life. You got the physical, you got the spiritual. Tim Keller made this observation, which I thought was pretty good. He says, This man, Jesus comes back to this man and says, You know, you gave me what you thought was your real problem, that you were lame. But there's a deeper problem. You gave me the thing that you felt like I needed to do something about. But, friend, if you really want peace, you need to realize I just gave you peace. Of your body. Gave you your body back. But he says, if you want real peace, you have to deal with your sin. You have to stop living for yourself. You have to start living for me. Real peace is found in me. Now these Jews are upset with Christ because He violates the Sabbath. Which he clearly didn't. But they were outraged and wanted to kill him. And that's why they eventually did because of blasphemy. And then starting in verse 19, he says something really, really interesting, guys. And I'll just say, there's so much in these verses. It's just, it's, it's hard to figure out which one we really want to focus on and not. But look at verse 19. And I want to share this. This has caused, um, in, the last, in the first two meetings, um, I'm going to share with something, something with you that you've not heard before probably. And, and you may scratch your head and wonder why. But it's important to grasp. And I'm going to show it that for two reasons. In verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
the Son of Man can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. In other words, Jesus, we think, all right, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. In John 10.30, He says, The Father and I are one. But as you look at verse 19, I only do what the Father tells me. Or like in, in John 8.28, He says, I only do what the Father teaches me. What is that about? You see, this is where most people don't get. And this is part of the mystery of the Incarnation. That Jesus is fully God. But this is, He's also fully man. Now why is it important that He was fully man? Do you all remember we talked about this? He had to be a man. Why? Experience everything we do. That and He had to go to the cross. He had to physically go to the cross. But He also had to be fully God. Why? Because only God could what? <clears throat> bear the sins of the world. You couldn't. You couldn't bear my sins. I couldn't bear yours. I could only bear mine. He's bearing the sins of the world. It had to be God. But this is our problem. We think of Him more as God than we do as a man. <clears throat> In fact, most of us see Him as Superman. But he's not. And this is what's so incredible about it. And again, we'll see why this is so... I'm going to show you why this is so important. Keep your finger here and go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Anybody have any comments on what I just said, by the way? Richard, I think this is evidence of uh, Jesus and uh, I guess in his relation with the Holy Spirit on earth. Because, you know, once he... We talk about, you know, once he was baptized, he got rid of it. that's when he started his ministry, and that's when he received the Holy Spirit. And you know, you see his, it, it's interesting to see his relationship with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> In Luke, I think it's 2, it talks about, and the Holy Spirit led him around through the wilderness for 40 days. Mm-hmm. And you know, he goes, and in Mark 1, it talks about he gets up early in the morning and goes out and spends time with his Heavenly Father. And he does this regularly. And that's important. You see the relationship between the, the Trinity. The, and, it, and think about it, That relationship has going, been going on for all eternity. And this is why God, the God that we serve, and this is why the Trinity is so important, it's a reflection of He is a relational God. If it was just one God... Then before he created the world, there's, he, he basically didn't need relationships. We serve a relational God. Why is that important? We're designed in the image of God. That's why we're relational beings. That's why human beings get lonely. Because we're made to be in relationship. And that's why... Boy, we could go down this path and talk up a lot. That's why our relationships are so important. Our relationships are more important than anything else, starting with our relationship with Him. That's the key to life. Because He is a relational God. Alright, I'm getting off track here. Everybody at Philippians 2? Who wants to read? Dan, you want to read? Sure. 
How about reading verses uh, 5, Philippians 2, 5 through 8? <clears throat> Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. <clears throat> then IV says, he didn't, didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped or to be held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. As Dan just read from the NAS, he emptied himself and he took the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men. The Amplified says that basically he he did not think this equality with God was a thing to be eagerly grasped or retained, but stripped himself of all privileges and rightful dignity so to assume the guise of a servant and that he might become like men. And then I really like this. I, I, I sometimes will do this. I went... <clears throat> I don't know if you, the, the, probably one of the most famous, and it's, it's, it's older, of the um, paraphrases. You know, you have all different kind of paraphrases. And a lot of people criticize the paraphrases, but um, J.D. Phillips wrote what's considered one of the great paraphrases ever. Now, C.S. Lewis read it and, 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 and endorsed it. Listen to the way Phillips describes what Jesus did. He says, Jesus who had always been God by nature, did not cling to his prerogative as God, but stripped himself of all the privileges by consenting to be a slave. You see, guys, Jesus is more of a man than we think. I mean, we talked uh, about in one of our first sessions in John, Luke 2.52, that Jesus continued to grow in wisdom and stature. In other words, his mind developed. His understanding developed. Just as it happens with us. Think about what does it say in James chapter 1, verse 13. It says, God cannot be tempted by evil. God, think about it. God can't be tempted by evil. But then we read, and we read this before. John uh, Hebrews 4.15 It says, We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. But we as one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now how is it if God said, if we read in James, He says God can't be tempted, and yet here we read Jesus was tempted in everything. How did that happen? That was His half man. Because if He was a man. By becoming a man, He was now in a position to be tempted. I'm not sure we have a real appreciation for this. But even more significant, the, 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 I think there are two significant parts here. There may be more than two. But it says there in, in Hebrews that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Maybe that's a, a serious, a major reason he came. <clears throat> that he understands human experience. He understands our struggles. But we also see that he was a man limited by time and space. He lived with a human mind. He therefore had limited knowledge. So how did he get everything that he needed to know? He got it from the Father. He prayed, he'd go talk to God every morning. 
And for instance, this, this, is, this is what I really think. That God told him, now today, you're going to run into a woman in Samaria. Now let me tell you about this woman. She's had five husbands. She's living with a guy. But you're going to have the opportunity to really minister to her. You're going to really have an opportunity to be used in this woman's life. And so Jesus not only came in as a man to be able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he came into the world as a man who utterly depended on God the Father every day of his life. And I think he's saying that this is the way we're supposed to live. Learning how to depend on God. Learning how to, depend, how to connect with him. How to hear his voice. How to, how to seek him. To let Him lead us in life. And we're to follow that example that He set for us. Comment or questions? Again, I found that this morning the guy said, you know, I've never heard this. This, this. this is something that's new to me. But it explains. Because for the longest time I'd read where Jesus says, I only do what the Father tells me. I'm sitting there thinking, why do, you have to, why do you have to do that? Because of his limitations as a man. And he's saying, and you have the same limitations as a man. And say, so that's why we have to look to God. And God is there to lead and guide us. <clears throat> but that's our biggest problem. Our biggest problems, guys, is our autonomy. Our independence. And that's the way we grow up as men. And this idea of depending on God sounds kind of weak. But man, we it's like someone said. Someone said to a guy, you know, I think God is a crutch. Well, you know, crutch is okay if you're crippled. And we are all crippled. We are all weak. We all have needs in our lives. Anybody have a comment on this? I don't mean to rush through it. I really don't, but anybody, are you with me? You got what I'm saying? One real quick point, in case you're wondering, um, because there's some really interesting verses in here, and you look at them, and, and, and it's like Jesus is talk, saying so much. It's like a fire hydrant. But look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. Yeah, this is this is something again that most people haven't really given much thought to. What's what's he, what's what do we learn here about the judgment? Do we learn anything about the judgment, the, the final judgment? To trust it to the Son. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jesus is going to be the judge that judges mankind. Remember what he said, and this is what's so interesting. Remember what he said in John three seventeen. I didn't come into the world to judge the world. I came to do what? Save. I came to save it. My mission here on earth is not to be judgmental. My mission is to come is to save the world. And then you read, let me read this from Matthew 25, 31 to 33. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels will be with Him, and then He's going to sit on His glorious throne, 
And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So we, need, we know that. That one day every... In fact, I'm going to come back to this in, in a minute. But I want to close by looking at, 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 at some... at these final four verses. Yeah, yeah, Mo. Uh, on that, along that line, yeah. uh, aren't there teachings and scriptures that say that God is the, in the final judgment, He is the final judge, and Christ, uh, His Son, speaks for us on our behalf? That's you? a really good point. Um, I, you know, I, I'm going to have to get back with you on that. That's, a, that's an interesting question. Everybody understand the question? Not contradict this. Well, yeah. Was, no, that's all right. Why, we, that's why all right. didn't we read verse 30? Why did we stop at 29? Well, I... Time. <laughs> <laughs> Taking that on the read. Thank you, Jeffrey. We'll get it to it next week. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. I mean, we're not skipping it. We'll come back to it. I have to get back with you. Anybody have any thoughts on that? That's a good you know, I really, I, I've never really spent a lot of time on the final judgment. You know, this, as we were, you know, so I, in Revelation, it may may address this. I, I just, I don't know. So, all right, let's look at verses twenty-five to twenty-nine. Twenty-five to twenty-nine. You know, I'm not sure if you noticed this. But if you look up the up in, in the in the if you look up in a commentary or a concordance, you see in the book of John the word judgment and condemnation, which you know those use it depends on which translation you use. Some say condemnation, some say judgment. But it's used a lot in this book, in the book of John. Now the word condemnation literally means separation. You see, that's what hell is. It's an everlasting separation from the presence of God. And as I was preparing for this, see, you know, C.S. Lewis has some really, I, I call them very sensible words about hell because people don't like hell. They don't think there's just something, they don't like to talk about it. But Lewis gives us some really sensible thinking on this. He says that God's ultimate punishment is the fairest punishment where God gives people ultimately what they want. I mean, think about that. If people want to live their lives apart from Him, what does He say? You can do it. I give you the freedom to do that. You remember we read in Romans 1, it says God gave them over to their desires. He gave them over to it. God does not force you to serve Him. And Lewis has that famous quote. I kind of paraphrase it a little bit. He says, unless you one day truly surrender yourself to Him and say, God, I want your, I want to follow you. I want to serve you. I want your will be, to be done in my life. If we don't do that, someday God's going to say, well, your will will be done in your life. And that's to live apart from Him. <clears throat> now, 
of all the verses in these 29 verses that, that, that has caused the most consternation for, for, for people is verse 29. Look at verse 29. What's that all about? It's making it sound like it's deeds that, that are going to matter. Yes. <clears throat> it does, doesn't it? I mean, it, it, at first glance, it does. But what do you think he's really... What is he saying? I mean, can good deeds get you into heaven? You know, notice it doesn't say your good deeds will get you into heaven. It says this is the type of people that get into heaven, doesn't it? You know what it's saying? That's what you said, the mirror. Yeah. And if you go back and look, look at 29, and go back and look at verse 24. I mean, is Jesus talking out of both sides of his mouth? I don't think so. Look at verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. You know, we've talked we've talked about what belief is. Look, look up on the board, guys. Look up on the board. James 1.26. Back, hold on. The actual... What does this mean? What does this mean? You must not have a legitimate faith if you aren't doing good works. Yeah, there should be a fruit to your faith. And that fruit should be good works. It's kind of like... There should be or there must be? Well, there. I mean, there, there should be. There must be. Yeah, I guess there's a difference, shouldn't it? Yeah, they must be. Like if you're pregnant, you'll be showing. Yes, you'll be showing. It's kind of like this. This is this is the best. In Matthew seven twenty, Jesus says, Let me tell you how to distinguish between a true prophet and a false prophet. And it's almost like you said, this is the way you distinguish between a true believer and one who just maybe says he believes. He says, You will know them by what? Your fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. And so you're not saved by your deeds or the fruit you bear. You're known by them. Keller has a good observation on this. He says that the Bible, the Bible says the people who are saved on Judgment Day are not just those who say they believe, but those who actually believe. And if you actually believe, it changes your heart. There's a real life change. The only sign of spiritual life in a person is spiritual growth. He says, listen, your deeds, your character, this is how you know you believe. Love, joy, peace, generosity, courage, integrity, humility, self-control. He says, are you really growing? Look at your deeds. You look over your, your Christian life. Has God wrought changes in your life? <clears throat> He says, are you more patient than you were last year? Are you kinder? Is your heart softer? He says, is your laugh deeper? Are your concerns broader? Look at your deeds. You're not saved by your deeds. You are revealed by your deeds. Yeah, Billy. Did you say James 1.22? 6. <clears throat> 
126. All right. Anybody comment? Everybody with me? Hopefully this has been instructional. Yes, yeah, right. To do these works with the right intention and the right heart. Of course, of course. It's not. Yeah, and again, it's it's. I like the word fruit. Basically, works are a fruit of true belief, of true faith. That there will be fruit. It doesn't mean you don't sin. Because that's what uh, I find people immediately start thinking. I, you know, I, you know, I got flaws in my life. Does that mean I'm not a Christian? No, but there will be fruit. There will be growth. And I can say, you know, I, I've known some of you. Some of you have been in here a long time. And I can say, I've seen growth. I've seen fruit. But that doesn't mean that there aren't flaws in your life. That doesn't mean there aren't weaknesses. That doesn't mean there aren't sin. But that doesn't mean that we should. that shouldn't keep us from forging ahead. Seeking to become more like Christ. Now, I want to close with a very interesting snippet from the Garden of Gethsemane. we got to hurry. So I, I really apologize, guys. I, I really do. I took this speaking engagement four months ago, and they reminded me uh, three days ago I had it. And they said, we, you told us you might be a few minutes late. I said, what am I speaking on? <laughs> anyway, everybody turn to John 18 real quickly. John 18. All right, Jim Ryan, you want to read verses 1 through 6 for us? John 18, 1 through 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book, Brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, he drew back and fell to the ground. Y'all got the picture here? Jesus is in the garden. Judas shows up with the Roman soldiers now. They had lanterns. They had weapons. And they came to capture Jesus, who was unarmed. And they, he says, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am He. You know what the literal translation is? He says, I am. Now, you know the significance of that? That's another word for God. Yeah, I am. And... and what do you make of this, guys? They step back and they fall to the ground. What do you make of that? Scared. He had to give them a second chance to arrest him. <laughs> he did. But but what what do you think happened there? I think they got this is I think they got a glimpse a quick glimpse of his glory. Right. Mm -hmm. And they are not, they just fell to the ground. 
Now guys, think about it. If they couldn't stand before Him as He was clothed in the rags of His mortality as a man, just think what it's going to be like standing before Him as He sits on His throne on the judgment seat. And Paul says in Philippians 2, we, didn't, we stopped at verse 8, verse 9 in chapter 2 says, Therefore also God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when we stand before that throne, I'm not sure how the concept, I'm not sure how the, the sequence of things, but the good news is, He's going to look at you and say, You are my child. You have eternal life. As John 5 24 says, And you will not come into judgment. You will have passed out of death into life. And this is a question that I would ask you guys What is that worth to you on that day? What is that worth? It's worth everything you got. And it just makes me think of that verse. I think it's 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you and I, through His poverty, might be rich. That we might have the true wealth of life. Because if you've got that, you've got everything. If you don't have it, you ain't got anything. You are impoverished. And that's the good news of the gospel. You've been listening to the Reliable Truth Podcast with Richard E. Simmons III founding director of the Center for Executive Leadership in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources, please visit our website at www.richardesimmons3.com or by email to richard at richardesimmons3.com.